Welcome to Beyond the Entertainment, where we take a look at the lives of those who entertain us. I'm talking about the tragedies, scandals, and crimes committed by them or to them. No one is off limits. We're going to talk about everyone from sports entertainers, Hollywood, YouTubers, and everyone in between. Everyone has a story to tell, and I'm here to tell you theirs. everyone, it's Stephanie, and I'm here with a new story for you. Today, I am finally bringing you part one of Marvin Gaye. His iconic songs have lasted the test of time and are still used in pop culture to this day. I never knew the contributions he made as a songwriter to the Motown era, but I was pleasantly surprised by how many of the songs I knew and still listened to. I found myself singing them as they were brought up in his biography, Divided Soul, The Life of Marvin Gaye, written by his friend David Ritz. He spent his life living out his passion for music, but also in great turmoil. He seemed to battle with his desires and who he was against his religious upbringing. He was always striving for the approval and love from his father that tragically ended with his father taking his life. So without further ado, let's take a look into this incredibly talented singer-songwriter's life. Marvin Pence Gay Jr. was born on April 2nd, 1939, to Marvin Pence Gay Sr. and Alberta Cooper Gay. Marvin Gaye Sr. was the third of 13 children. 13 children. Can you imagine? I mean, he was born in 1914, though, so let's be honest. That was probably pretty common, but that's still so many children. His mother was a religious woman who took a chance on a new fellowship called the House of God, which was a mix of Orthodox Judaism and Pentecostal Christianity. One big difference of this church is that they only celebrate the holidays in the Old Testament. This means that Jesus' birth and crucifixion, or what we know as Christmas and Easter, are not celebrated. They look at them as pagan holidays and are ignored. I would have to agree with them, as they were originally pagan celebrations for the changing of the seasons that were adapted for the Catholic Church as a religious holiday when Catholicism was invented and implemented way back in the day. Marvin Sr. became very involved in the church and began traveling to preach with his uncle and evangelist sister Fame. That's how he would meet his wife, Alberta, in Washington, D.C. Alberta at the time had an infant son named Michael, but when they married, Marvin Sr. didn't want to raise him as his own. Michael would be sent to live with Alberta's sister, which was luckily in the same city. This is just heartbreaking, as I wonder if she had decided to marry the other man who had been courting her, which was a preacher of the church and later became Bishop Rawlings, if maybe she would have been able to keep her son. I can't imagine having to give up my child for my new husband, but it was a different time, so I can't fairly judge her for that decision. Two years after their marriage, they had a daughter named Jean, and then came Marvin. Now, Marvin Sr. would say that it was important to him to have a son and a namesake, that he thanked God for this blessing of his life, and that he knew Marvin was destined for greatness. However, Alberta would say that he never wanted Marvin Jr., and used to say that Marvin wasn't his son. For some reason, he didn't love Marvin and didn't want her to love him either. I can't fathom the turmoil that created in Marvin's young life, as it wasn't hard for him to pick up on the fact that his father didn't love him. It would become a lifelong fight to someday do something that would make his father love him or show him an ounce of approval. Marvin Gaye Sr. brought the church into his home in 1936, just a few years before Marvin Jr. was born. 
They were joined by another family in their home and within the congregation, the Solomons. Mr. Solomon remembered Marvin Jr. playing the piano and singing while they worshipped. Marvin had learned to play the piano by ear. The Sabbath was strict for the family growing up as come Friday night, their normal lives would stop. They were only allowed to pray and praise God. They were drilled and tested on the Old and New Testaments. Marvin's sister recalled that the women couldn't wear sleeveless dresses, nylons, lipstick, or nail polish. They couldn't show their hair or wear open-toed shoes. They were not allowed to dance, watch movies, or television. A former housemate and congregation attendee said Marvin Sr. had expectations that were way too high for a young boy, and it seemed that he had held a grudge against his son. She was witness to the beatings that Marvin would receive. She often prayed with Marvin's mother for the beatings to stop. Marvin would say his dad got enjoyment from prolonging his beatings, and there wasn't an inch of his body his father hadn't bruised or hit. He would often try to provoke him just to get him to finish faster. One incident was because Marvin had wet the bed, but a sister Jean said all four of the siblings had a bedwetting problem. It was evident of the fear and nervousness that existed in the household due to his frequent beatings of all the children. She would also say that he would demand that they were all naked for the whippings which just brings an incredible amount of humiliation on top of that. Marvin Sr. lost faith in his church in the 50s when Marvin was a teenager and left after Mr. Solomon became bishop over him. It was a blow to his ego, which seemed to make him angrier. But can anybody fault them for not making him bishop over the church? Seeing the fall from grace of his father, Marvin Jr. began to fear his own fall as well. A lot of fears surrounded his views on sex. He had an inner turmoil from the teachings that were pounded into him about women being dangerous and sexual desires being a sin. He also searched for an untainted woman and one much like his own mother, someone who would submit and obey with him without really equating it to the fact that his mother's blind obedience was probably due to fear. Now, Marvin Sr. always wore at least one item of women's clothing, causing a lot of cruel ridicule for Marvin in his life growing up. You have to remember that this was not something people accepted, nor was homosexuality, especially in that time period. Later in life, Marvin admitted that he wore women's clothing as well, but only in a place where it was private, free from prying eyes that would judge him for it. Marvin Sr. didn't really seem to care about people seeing him or knowing. Five of his siblings were homosexual, and it's very plausible that he could have been as well, but didn't want to face that reality. It would make sense as to why he was so angry hiding his true self, Not to excuse his behavior, but a possible theory. Marvin Jr.'s singing talent was very evident from early in life. His mother was his biggest supporter, encouraging him to not only sing, but pursue his dreams of doing it professionally. His singing became really important to him in middle school. It coincided with him going through puberty, and he had a correlation between singing and sex as it was his way of expression. It also helped that it brought him attention from the ladies. It was a way of expressing himself when his life was getting harder. He could put emotion behind it and feeling in a way that a lot of us, I'm sure, can relate to. They moved in 1954 as they had to move to a new group of projects as the buildings on their street was being torn down. Marvin Sr. never really held a job. Alberta was working as much as she could to support her family. So the only protector that Marvin Jr. would have would be gone. Marvin Sr. began drinking very heavily, and as a rebellious teen, Marvin Jr. was trying to finally stand up for himself. However, the conflicts would cause more beatings and for Marvin Jr. to be kicked out of the house. 
A friend on the street nicknamed Peasy would often take Marvin in, and his mother would slip him money through her just to make sure that he wouldn't go without, and to ease the burden of her family taking another person in. Around this time, music was changing, and it was swimming in the ears of a young Marvin Gaye. The style was a mix of gospel, blues, and jazz, which would be known as doo-wop. It called to Marvin more than the songs he sang when he worshipped. The church music and gospel teachings were still a big part of his life and who he was as a person, but this style of music became a passion he needed to pursue. He was inspired by the Orioles, the Drifters, the Cadillacs, and Lee Andrews and the Hearts. The music spoke to his loneliness, alienation from his family, and his sense of unrequited love. Marvin said the song God Only Knows by the Capris nearly killed him. It was so much soul and so much hurt that reached his heart in a way that no one except the Lord could. Music can do so much. Heal your pain, start the party, bring back memories that you had forgotten about, and say the words that you aren't able to. Music touched Marvin's soul and heart in a way that many of us can probably relate to. Marvin went to high school at Cardoza High School, where he formed the group DC Tones, but he would say his real high school was the Howard, where he went to study all the singers. Marvin wanted to absorb everything about the performances, from the way they sang to how they played. He actually played the piano in his first band, so his lead singer, Sandra Ladisaw, said she didn't even know that he could sing. She described him as sensitive and shy and lonely, but a gentleman who was always dressed well. His friend Reese Palmer remembered Marvin singing in the rec center and talking about how he wanted to do pop music. Billie Holiday was his biggest female inspiration back then. He dropped out of high school after the 11th grade to pursue music. They considered school to be a waste of time and had become really disillusioned with the government as well. As a teenager, his eyes were open to the reality of the world that he was living in. He lived in a time where everything was still segregated. And even in Washington, D.C., looking at the monuments, he felt that they were just symbols of freedom for white people only. His coming of age was a realization that he was different and a feeling of being less than for no other reason than a skin color. Despite his feelings about the government, he still enlisted in the Air Force. He saw himself flying with a look like Errol Flynn, ascot tied around his neck and everything. His father would say that he joined the armed forces because he had given him an ultimatum, either join or finish high school and start college. His army career didn't last very long as they wouldn't let him fly and he ended up being stuck peeling potatoes in the kitchen. He would refuse to obey his authority figures, which was the ultimate reason for his discharge. He did this on purpose. He wanted them to think he was a little crazy as he knew they wouldn't let him do what he had really wanted to do. It did get to a point where he almost started to believe that he might be crazy. When he was finally discharged, it would state that he cannot adjust to regimentation and authority. As a shy young man who had been unable to approach women, he would lose his virginity while he was still enlisted. Unfortunately, it was to a prostitute that he wasn't exactly attracted to. It probably didn't help that it was basically four girls for 2,000 men, and she was rushing him to move on to the next guy. He was incredibly nervous and tried to tell her that he had never done it before, but he just couldn't find the words. He said what came from the experience was a sense of betrayal. It was crude and frightening. But at the same time, he could see a world of pure sex where people turned off their minds and fed their lusts. It sickened him and excited him at the same time. I wonder if his thoughts about sex would have changed if it had been with a woman he loved or cared about. It does show a little bit of his inner turmoil between his desires and the deep-rooted morality that was instilled within him that he battled with every day. He knew he couldn't return home after leaving the Air Force as his father would be very angry. 
He didn't want to face him to be shamed, so he couch hopped with his friends for a little while. Then they would form the Marquise, which was inspired by the popular group the Moonglows. Reese Palmer was first tenor, James Nolan sang baritone, Chester Simmons sang bass, and Marvin was second tenor, but also could do a beautiful baritone harmony, according to Reese. The group would sing anywhere they could get booked, from sock hops to school assemblies. The Marquis were even invited on a TV show aimed at teenagers called The Milt Grant Show. Although they were getting gigs and a TV appearance, things didn't really take off until Marvin's childhood friend Peasy introduced them to Bo Diddley. Marvin loved Bo's sound from his beats to the lyrics he sang. Bo Diddley was a black Frenchman, a Creole man from the Bayou country whose life inspired his music. He was also a man who had changed Marvin's life by helping his group produce their first record. Now, the first record may have flopped, but they had gained some experience that would only drive them further to find success. The group under Bo Diddley's guidance were pushing a more rhythmic sound instead of tapping into melody or harmony that would suit their natural abilities. Marvin was struggling with his desire to be a part of the team when he desperately wanted to be the lead. Singing in a group was a start, but he really wanted to be a solo artist instead. His time would come and his patience would pay off, as we all know. In the meantime, he was doing anything he could to avoid his father. He would sneak home for a day or two to get food or money from his mother. His mother supported him knowing he could make it, while his father was a constant devil on his shoulder wishing for his demise. In November of 1958, the Marquis got word that Harvey Fuqua was looking for some new moon glows. That was the group that they had been emulating in the beginning, so it was very exciting to learn that they would be replacing them. While rehearsing, Harvey coached them on how to move their mouth muscles to make all kinds of sounds that would improve their singing technique, as well as how to make their breath part of the phrasing or even part of the sound. Marvin would use these vocal techniques throughout his entire life in the music industry. In early 1959, Marvin would sign with Harvey for life and go to Chicago with the newly formed Harvey and the Moonglows. Once in Chicago, the group would bring on Chuck Barksdale that would make them a sextet. When it came to music, Harvey reminded Marvin of his father as he was very strict, but no matter how many fights that would happen between them or within the group, Harvey knew Marvin was talented. So he looked past any temper tantrums that he threw. Marvin in turn knew that Harvey was helping him become a better singer, but also giving him a real opportunity to reach his dreams. Harvey recognized Marvin's ability to pull attention during dance songs and ballads with the way he sounded and how he swayed to the music. The women saw it too, so when they hit the road, he was living his fantasy of romancing the women through his music. You see, the problem with this was he felt sexually obligated to his female fans, but also felt that he was sexually inadequate. He was barely an adult with women throwing themselves at him because he was a handsome man. There was this inner turmoil amongst the obvious ego boost from the attention that he was getting, but also that he wasn't good enough. He couldn't satisfy them, or maybe that he just wasn't big enough, if you know what I mean. In the beginning of your sexual experience, these are perfectly normal insecurities to have, but Marvin had a different kind of battle where women were either absolutely good or absolutely corrupt. An early relationship he had while he was touring was with a prostitute, where fights would often end in violence. She once took a bite out of Marvin's stomach during a fight. And I'm sure with his experience growing up with his parents, he probably thought that fighting and violence was a pretty normal thing in relationships. By the end of the 60s, music was changing, and Harvey and Marvin were aware of this. The Moonglows weren't doing that well anymore, they weren't really attracting the youth, and they weren't bringing in a lot of money. 
So they decided it was time to break away, as Harvey felt that Marvin could make it as a solo artist. They would settle in Detroit, with Harvey moving more to a managerial role, as he felt his performing days were numbered. In 1960, he would start Harvey Records and combine with Anna Records, who was run by Gwen Gordy. Her brother Barry had a successful record label of his own. Gwen was interested in Harvey, and his impressive track record in the music business had some appeal to her as well. Harvey was still a small label as he had signed a tenor saxophonist, a group called The Quails, and of course Marvin. Barry saw the potential in Harvey's talent, so he made an offer to buy Marvin from him. This was a little bit of a blow to Marvin, as he had looked at Harry as a father figure, but Barry would soon take over that role as the father figure to Marvin. Barry knew what he was doing, and he would revolutionize Motown, which would become the biggest Black-owned industry in American business. Barry was in control of everything, from how music was written to who would sing it. If you wanted to get in the studio, you had to get close to him. One man that was a longtime friend of his was Smokey Robinson, so Marvin decided that he needed to get close to him. The women who worked in the office were Martha Reeves and Diana Ross. Marvin got into the studio by telling them that he was a drummer. Now, he wasn't exactly a drummer, but he learned to play by ear just as he had with the piano. That is how Marvin became the drummer for the Miracles and began touring with them. He would only make about $5 a session, but he at least was in. He developed a friendship with Smokey, but he needed some personal help with Barry, aside from the professional help that he would get through Smokey. So how would he accomplish this? Well, Barry had four sisters, and one of them would catch Marvin's eye. Her name was Anna. Now, you might think he went into this relationship just to get close to her brother, and you're partially right. Anna was 17 years older than Marvin, but she loved to hear him play, sing, and loved his writing. She also served as a teacher in the bedroom. She was caring, and he described her as a loving teacher. She was much like his mother in a sense which he was aware of. It had been brought to his attention before, but as a man whose only comfort in his entire life was his mother, it's no wonder he would find someone who reminded him of her. In the early 60s, Barry realized he had to take a step back and run the business while others wrote for him. Up to this point, he was doing a lot of the songwriting, but as his business grew, it was time to delegate. He created a team of successful writers that he would obviously pit against each other for a competitive edge. He wanted Marvin to join the ranks of writers, even though Marvin didn't want to get lost as a writer instead of a singer. He proved to be very talented, especially with his ability to play instruments as well. Marvin could compose the whole piece from the tune to the lyrics. He was humble, and instead of taking the majority of the credit, which he would have been right to do so, he would share the credit equally with anyone who had helped out. He didn't care if they contributed one word or one note. He wasn't confident enough to take full credit, but he also knew that taking full credit could diminish his chances at performing his songs instead of just writing them for others. It also didn't help that the bigger Barry's talent got, the more he made, the more power he attained, the more he reminded Marvin of a field sergeant, which inevitably caused them to butt heads. You can admire a man for what he can do and what he has, but that power and control is what would drive Marvin to attain that for himself. It seemed that his affections were short-lived for what you could teach and offer him because soon he wanted to have everything that you did. This can create a vicious cycle of always wanting more and losing those around you because of jealousy. Once Marvin's relationship with Anna was cemented, he had a request for her. He wanted her to convince her brother to let him make a jazz pop album. Marvin didn't want to make a rhythm and blues album. He was bored with it, you could say. He also had a different idea in his mind. He wanted to sell his music to white people. 
The music he was helping with was targeted to black people, but he wanted to make a sound that would break through to the white audience. It makes sense as in the early 60s, they had everything that he was trying to fight for. To him, white people had the money and he wanted it. It would also put him at a higher level of success than he felt he could accomplish otherwise. Anna was able to convince Barry to let him make a pop album, which is when he added the E to the end of his last name. He hated its name and how it connected him to his father. He also thought it was too easy for people to add is to his name. So basically, is Marvin gay or Marvin is gay? It was a small way to make it different without him changing it completely. And he thought it could class it up a little bit as he was kind of inspired by Sam Cooke, who did the same thing with his last name. The album failed, though, as did his first single. He did a few covers in his first album, but the ones written by Barry, Harvey, and Anna seemed to be the most well-received. He was struggling to find a sound and trying to sing in a way that he wasn't used to. Marvin felt he failed as they didn't push him like they would everybody else. However, over the next four years, he would make six albums in an attempt to make a Black Sinatra that were pushed, but just not well-received. It was debated that they just couldn't reach the intended market, or that in his early days, he wasn't able to reach the emotional depth needed to succeed as a balladeer. He was creating a new sound, which takes time to perfect, as you have to have a few failures sometimes to find success. Marvin never gave up. As we all know, he did get his first hit. He was watching everyone around him hitting the charts with songs like Please Mr. Postman and You Beat Me to the Punch. Anna always encouraged him to keep trying because she knew he would make it. He was in the studio one day and thinking about how Anna always said he was stubborn when inspiration would hit. He would come up with the song Stubborn Kind of Fellow. It would be a hit in the black community, even though that wasn't the target audience. He quickly realized that he needed to start there if he wanted to hit. It wasn't that he wouldn't be able to become a popular black artist with white fans, but he had to create a following somewhere before he could become more widespread. With this first successful hit, he would go on tour with the first Motortown Review in 1962. He would tour with The Contours, Supremes, Marvelettes, Stevie Wonder, Mary Wells, and The Miracles. The tour would start at the Howard, where Marvin studied performers in high school and end at the Apollo. The last show was recorded, and it was called Live at the Apollo Volume 1. The show was overall a little unpolished, as they hadn't really figured out the best way to put the show together before they went on tour. Marvin was incredibly nervous the entire time, which you could hear when he sang. He was a very shy person, performing in front of a large crowd as a solo act, which can be pretty terrifying. He had sang in front of people before, but normally in a group or with a small audience. I know those big stages must be nerve-wracking no matter how many times you've done it. However, he would tap into his muse, Ray Charles, mid-performance before breaking out into a church cry and singing his hit song with his full chest. He was able to find that confidence inside him to break out of his shaky voice performance to show everybody what he really could do. Marvin had a lot of female fans, in which you see a lot of times he will correlate sex with music. How his music can excite, tease, and please his female fans. For him, his expression of emotions in music is sometimes stronger than the act of sex itself. Yet he was still struggling inside with his insecurities. He would feel guilt and self-scorn after his performances. They would put Stevie Wonder on before him because he would bring the energy up and give Marvin no choice but to come out and put his all into his set. After the song Hitchhike became a hit, Marvin was credited with creating the dance craze that went with the song. He hated performing the dance, even if he looked relaxed and polished when he did the dance at different appearances. 
He was afraid of asking girls to dance when he was in school because he thought he would just stumble all over himself. It seems that same awkward feeling followed him into adulthood. He would say that James Brown was the black dancer in the business and you couldn't overstep that, except for Michael Jackson. He had the moves to take on the legacy in a way that Marvin felt he couldn't come close to. In June of 1963, Marvin wrote the song Pride and Joy about his relationship with Anna. It was about the love that he felt for her and what she did for him in life. They got married that year where Anna Records used to be. A friend Clarence Paul remembered that they even got into a fight at the reception, which resulted in Anna hitting Marvin in the head with a shoe. Him and Harvey nearly fell over laughing. I'm sure that's not the best way to start a marriage, but everyone has arguments and they'd been together for a few years at this point. I'm sure their friends were pretty used to their dynamic. Marvin loved her family. He felt that he had been adopted into the Gordy family where he had a father-in-law and a mother-in-law who showed compassion, acceptance, and strength that he had never had before. He was able to be the cool uncle who was caring and compassionate to the children in his family. I'm sure he was treating them how he wished he had been treated throughout his youth. Marvin's success meant that he was able to buy his parents a home in the black middle-class area of Northwest Washington, so his mother wouldn't have to work as hard since his father refused to help. He, of course, would send money to his mother and siblings so they wouldn't struggle, but he rarely visited just to avoid being near his father and would never combine his families. He didn't want his family to meet the Gordys as if he thought that union would take the peace away that he was feeling with them. Many people from his life before he went to Detroit were hurt by the fact that he eventually said he was from Detroit and it was like Washington never existed. He wanted to leave his past in the past. Can we blame him? He wanted to create a new life with some semblance of happiness, even if inside the past would haunt him forever. I think this is a good place to leave the story for now. We got a look at the tumultuous childhood that Marvin had. He had so much inner conflict regarding his own identity and what seemed to stem from religious trauma. The battles he held within were made possible by his father, and it's no wonder he wouldn't want to go home after he left. I didn't know most of these things about his life, so it's very enlightening to see what he went through and what his inner thoughts were like. I credit the book Divided Soul because it was started before Marvin tragically died, so the author was able to talk to Marvin, gather his memories, and I feel like he expressed it really well. I look forward to bringing the next part of Marvin's story, and I think this will probably result in maybe two more parts. It's really hard to leave things out as I feel it brings some insight into who he was as a person, aside from the fame that he was able to achieve and apart from his tragic death. As always, if you have any suggestions for future stories or want to share a story with me, you can send it to beyondtheentertainmentpod at gmail.com. Give me a follow on Instagram at staylor underscore BTE, or you can find me on Twitter at BTE underscore pod. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, you can do that at anchor.fm slash beyondtheentertainmentpod slash support. You can make a monthly donation of as little as 99 cents, and that can help me with costs related to research and recording equipment. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Beyond the Entertainment. 